If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some paperback ones in the little racks underneath the seats. Ordinarily, we uh, put it up on the screen, and that's a good thing. There's a lot of convenience in that, but um, we're not going to do that today. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones that's in the racks underneath the seats. Uh, maybe you brought a personal Bible. Maybe some of you are going to have to get your phone out and open up your Bible app. It's still cheating. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, the screen can be incredibly convenient. It can be incredibly valuable. But if it becomes a crutch, it's a problem. All right? And so in love for you, every once in a while, not, not very often, every once in a while we're going to shut it down on purpose. All right? So that that doesn't happen. All right? So Ephesians chapter 3. All right, we are, um, we are in the middle of a series now. We've been working for several months now. Uh, we started this in July, if you can remember. Uh, we've been in a series for several months now on uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, simply called Ephesians. We're calling our series, though, To the Saints. We've got some artwork for it. Garrett did a great job. Uh, and the premise is incredibly simple. Paul writes a letter to a church he loved dearly, uh, a letter to a, a church in the city of Ephesus. And, and the reason why we call it To the Saints is because that's who the church in Ephesus are. They're, they're the saints. The saints aren't this special, venerated class of people. They're not this, this group of people that have been voted and canonized or anything like that. No, they're, they're, they're made righteous, declared holy because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And God gathers them together even though they, they're full of, of problems and missteps and shortcomings. They, they're united together by God for uh, God's good, for the gospel's good, for their good, and for the corporate good. And so that's who the saints are, a ragtag group of people who have been united together as a body, a local group called the church. And so um, Paul's letter is to a church, a bunch of saints gathered together, the Hagios, if you remember what we said back all the way in July, all right? a group of people gathered together and he's going to give them some instruction. All right? And so he starts out that instruction not with a bunch of practical, functional, do this, do this, do this, but unpacking absolutely massive truth. All right? He starts off in chapter 1 by talking about the plan that existed from before the foundation of the world. God's plan is unthwartable. God's plan is eternal, God is eternally working, and he is a good God who will succeed in all the things he's saying he's going to succeed on. He has already done some, he's going to finalize it in the future, but all of these things are part of the eternal scope, the eternal plan of God that existed from before the foundation of the world. All right? And so he starts off in chapter 1 saying, hey listen, God's got a plan, and that's very different than Artemis, that's very different than what you're used to in the Ephesian culture. All right? I know you don't live and operate in a world where gods and kings are good and trustworthy, but our God is. And then in chapter 2, he talks about a problem. He says that we are separated from this God, right? That because of our sin, because of our trespasses, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, he says. That we're separated from this God. He calls us spiritually dead. But then he says, but God. This God takes us from spiritual death and he brings us to spiritual Life. He reconciles us to himself. He gives us himself. He does every ounce of it through grace and nothing of our own merit. He unites us to himself and he creates us, realigns us with the thing that he has created us for all along. In verse 10 of chapter 2, he says that, that we are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is the way he words that. That to, to be reconciled with the good creator is to be reconciled with who he's created us to be. And then Paul goes into chapter 3. And last week we, we, we looked at chapter 3. Uh, we, he, Paul starts off on this kind of weird rabbit trail, if you remember. 
He, uh, he's going to get started by talking about how he's a prisoner for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Then he calls a timeout, that little M-dash thing, right? You remember that from last week? That little M-dash thing, all right? He calls a timeout and goes on a two-paragraph rabbit trail where he goes back to talking about what God is doing in and through the church and how God delights in what he's doing in, in and through the church, how he brags on what he's doing in and through the church. Remember? So you all ready to look at what Paul was going to say before he went on his little two-paragraph parenthetical statement? A little time out? All right. Verse 14. For this reason. So what's the reason? Everything we just talked about, right? And now we can add what we talked about last week. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So I've told you once that, at least once that I can remember, um, that we have to be careful when we're reading the Bible not to read our own culture back onto theirs. All right? And just to give you an example that one time I'm thinking of uh, is when we uh, spend some time talking about how uh, within the church, leadership looks like servanthood. All right? And we looked at the story of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they're bickering over who's going to be you know, his right-hand guy and who's going to be his left-hand guy and who's going to be the other ten and all that kind of stuff. And he pulls them aside and says, boys, 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 boys. No, no, no. Quit acting like the Gentiles. You remember what he says after that? He says, if you want to be first in my kingdom, you've got to be last. Then he says, you've got to make yourself a slave to all. And so what we said then, it was several months ago, but what we said then was that because that they had never lived in a world, never operated in a world where leaders actually like, sacrificed themselves for everyone else, that stood in stark contrast to what they were used to, right? Like They had never seen a leader, political or religious, that had, had lived like that and acted like that and saw the world like that and sacrificed themselves in that way. And so that... That command, that command was weird. Leaders in their world was, was the type of person who had the power and the resources to take that leadership. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, hey guys, 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 the Gentiles act like that. The Gentiles lord it over others. If you want to be first in my kingdom, you must be a slave to all. They didn't know how to process that because they'd never seen it before. There's something going on in verse 14 that would have been immediately picked up by a first century reader that we have to work a little harder for. For this reason, I bow my knees. He, Paul bows his knees in prayer? Like when we think of bowing knees, what do we think? I mean, it's kind of a trope, right? Like we, we kind of expect a, this mental picture of Somebody bowing on their knees to happen when we think of prayer. Same way we would expect somebody to hold their hands in a certain way, right? It's become this kind of catch-all category for all types of prayer. So we, it gets put on greeting cards and, and, and things like that. I'm, I'm sure there's, there's some emoji for it somewhere. All right? But here's the thing. When we think of prayer, it's kind of this knee-jerk reaction to think, oh yeah, hit your knees, put your hands a certain way, and start changing your language and throw in a lot of these and thous, right? It's this trope that we have. But the Bible doesn't dictate the posture of our prayer. That's something that's developed over time, right? A lot of people pray a specific way. But here's the thing. It's so ingrained in our culture. It's so ingrained in our, in our mindset of what prayer is that there's a lot of people who aren't Christians who 
upon discovering that that's not how we typically pray, would be like genuinely surprised. It's like, wait a second, you, you, know, you don't have to kneel? You don't have to hold your hands a certain way? There are a lot of people who've never seen prayer happen, and because all we have is the cultural picture, that's where they go to in their mind, right? And so when you're teaching somebody how to pray, you're usually unpacking all that kind of stuff. That's something that's developed in our culture over time. And it's certainly not the way a trained Pharisee in the first century would have prayed. Right? They would have stood with their hands up. They would have prayed out loud, shouting to the heavens. By the way, a little sidebar. Let that that influence the way you read the story of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It affects the way you read things. That's for free. We'll preach on that somewhere down the road. That's not the way a trained first century Pharisee would have prayed. That's not the way the Apostle Paul would have grown up praying or learned to pray. But that doesn't mean, though, that doesn't mean that you don't see kneeling in prayer in the Bible. It's actually all over the place in the Bible. It's just always associated with a certain heart attitude. It's not any old prayer. It's prayer closely linked to a dramatic humbling. A dramatic humbling. Think Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, for those of you who know the story. Isaiah finds himself having a vision, and all of a sudden he finds himself in the, in the throne room of God. And do you remember what he says? Like he, sees, he sees that God's, the train of God's robe filled the temple. And the temple in his head was literally the biggest thing he could imagine. And so the fact that the train of his robe filled the temple, is, that's just using the terms that he could, he could fathom at the moment. So God's big God, a big God. And he's got these angels flying around, the seraphim he calls them, and they're shouting back and forth, holy, holy, holy. And the, and the Bible says that the ground quakes, that there's an earthquake at the sound of the angels' voices. And Isaiah, what does Isaiah do for those of you who know the story? He goes, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and, my eyes, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. He hits the deck, right? Why? Because Isaiah, even though he's the most righteous man in his nation at the time, Isaiah gets an immediate picture of God's bigness and his smallness. Isaiah gets an immediate picture, a very stark understanding of God's absolute holiness and his utter sinfulness. Even though he's the most righteous man in his nation, Isaiah ain't got nothing on God, right? And so what is his response? Uh Uh-oh, and bails. You see kneeling in prayer in the Bible. But not over any old thing. You see it when it's a dramatic dramatic humbling. So when we wrongly read our culture into theirs, we miss a lot of different things, but one of the things that we miss is the weightiness of what's going on in this moment, don't we? If kneeling in prayer is just this trope thing, if it's just this metaphorical picture that we have for any old type of prayer, oh yeah, that's just what you do, we miss the reality that Paul is undone here. Right? In Paul's world, in Paul's worldview, you don't hit your knees for, for any old prayer. You hit your knees when you get a sense of God's bigness 
Paul unfolds for the church at Ephesus the amazing things that God is doing from before the foundation of the world, and it stirs in him a humility that causes him to hit the deck. Right? It stirs in him this thing that, uh uh-oh, I better go to my knees on this one. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, so Paul's still in humble adoration mode here, right? Every family in heaven on earth. What does that mean? Well, it's just another way of saying all peoples. We see Paul use the same kind of terminology when he talks about God's sovereignty and God's control uh, over lordship over all peoples in other places in the Bible. You can, you can look to his other letters. He, sees, he says this over and over again, but he goes a step further. He says, he says that he gives them their names, that he names them. So back to the different cultures thing, right? A name to a first century Jewish reader, Near Eastern reader, different than the way we think of a name, right? Like this may be like this revelatory thing for some of you, but Christianity isn't a Western religion. Now, it highly influenced Western thought in, in pretty much all of Western thought, right? but it's not itself Western. It existed long before Western thought, right? So, Christianity is an Eastern religion, which means that there's layer here, there's nuance here. There are things that, that have meaning that lie just underneath the surface that that matter immensely. And somebody who's coming out of that world would immediately pick up on those things that we in the West just have to work a little bit harder to understand, right? Not because one's more valuable than the other, or one's right and one's wrong. It's just it, if the roles were reversed, it'd be the same for them, right? The, the, way, the DNA of the structure of our culture and the way we see the world and the way we think about the world and the way we make sense of things, it's just not trained to see those things. Case in point, Names. To a first century Near Eastern mind, a name was not just what your parents gave you and called you when you got in trouble. Right? It was fundamentally attached to their identity. And the closest we have to that in the West would probably be the idea of reputation. But even still, that's something you've made for yourself. You can build your reputation. Right? You can tear down your reputation if you're masochistic like that, right? You can, you can do good things or bad things to your reputation. But still, that's, that's not something that's just been handed to you that you got to deal with, right? This is why names are so important in the Bible. Like those of you who know your Bibles well, when, when God changes Jacob's name in Genesis to Israel, what's going on there? It's not just that that God's saying, hey, I'm going to make you kind of a patriarch for my people, and I think, I think Israelites sound better than the other one, so why don't we go with that one? That's not what's going on here. There's a theological point being made in that moment, isn't there? Name matters. This is why the names of God are so important in the Bible. Some of y'all have taken entire Bible studies where you've done nothing but look at the names of God and what they mean and what that tells us about his character, Right? 
Like you've spent months looking at that. And some of your favorite things about the Bible are going back to those names and trusting in God's goodness and trusting in God's character because of what his name means, right? Name to a, to a first century audience and anything predating that are highly influential. They're directly tied to identity. And Paul here says that God is not only sovereign over all, Lord over all the families of the earth, but he gives them their names. The lordship and sovereignty of God is not an afterthought here, is it? He is doing something. He is big, he is good, and he is working all things according to his purpose. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The first thing prisoner Paul prays, is a humbled adoration of who God is. But that's not all he prays for. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul shifts from adoration to request here, right? Those of you who grew up in Sunday school probably learned a little, little acronym, a little tool called ACTS, A-C-T-S, when it came to learning how to pray, a little structure to give it, right? So what do they mean? A means adoration. C means confession. T means thanksgiving. S means supplication or request. Y'all are good Sunday school students. Good job, guys. Yeah. All right. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, Supplication. It's just a little tool to use when, when you're trying to give some structure to prayer. And so if you move from one to the next, it's, it's a pretty solid structure for your prayer, right? You adore God, you confess sin, you thank him for the things he's done, you ask him for the things you need, right? That, that's, that's all access. It's a tool. Those of you who were here when Claude King was here a few weeks ago uh, learned that he likes that tool a lot, and he talked it up a good bit, all right? So access is this really, really simple but also good tool. Like the reason why Claude King used it is because it's good. It's, it's, it's a good way to pray. But Paul, Paul doesn't use Acts, does he? Paul adores God, and then he skips confession, and he skips thanksgiving, and he goes straight to supplication, right? Which leads me to, to ask the question, would Paul pass your Sunday school class? Some of you, the answer is no. All right. No, there's obviously more than one way to pray, right? Paul here moves straight from adoration to asking God for stuff. It says, That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Alright, so Paul asks God to strengthen them with power through His Spirit, His Spirit, right? And that sounds awesome. Like anybody going, nah, I don't want that. You might go, you know what, that sounds interesting, but I got a lot on my plate. I'd rather not be strengthened with the Holy Spirit. Now, we all want to be strengthened with the Holy Spirit to do awesome stuff, don't we? Whether that's move mountains or just be effectual for change and for good things. Like, we all want to be empowered with the Holy Spirit to do mighty things. So let's start a power team ministry. Nobody knows what that is? Good. All right. If you don't know what that is, Google it later. Actually, don't. There's some things out of Christian subculture that we produced in the 90s that we're just not proud of. All right, so some of you are Googling it right now. 
power team. Yeah, never mind. All right, so everybody wants to be used mightily for God. And so uh, one of these things that was produced in the 90s was this thing that you know, people would kind of walk through and, and lift things and tear, uh, uh, what's the word, phone books? I haven't used one in years. Phone books, that's all they're good for now, so showing you're strong, right? All right, so uh, they, they would do all these big, mighty strength things and show that God is a powerful God and he equips us with power and all these kinds of things. And here's the problem, though. Verse 17 starts with two little words that we probably ought to pay attention to. What's those words? So that. Which means, dear church, that being strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit is a means to a greater end, doesn't it? So what's that end? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? The greater end that Paul is aiming at is that we would know God. That we would know him deeply, right? Little sidebar. <laughs> the only thing that kept me from preaching this text when we did our Who We Are series and we walked through our mission statement and when we got to the knowing God part, the only thing that kept me from preaching this specific text then was knowing that I was supposed to preach this specific text today. I gave JB and I no Ephesians rule. <laughs> You want to ask the question, what does prisoner Paul pray for? Oh, hear me, church. It's not that he would get out of jail soon. Now, I think he probably did pray that. That's a good prayer, but that's not, that's not his heart right now. It's not that he would get out of jail soon, and it's not that he would make the Ephesian church mighty and influential in their city, although I think that's probably not a bad thing either. No, the thing that Paul is moved to pray for after getting a sense of God's bigness and getting a sense of God's goodness, the knee-jerk reaction of his heart is to say, Oh God, God, would you make yourself known to them mightily? Would you make yourself known to them deeply? The knee-jerk desperation level prayer in the heart of the Apostle Paul is to say, God, would you reveal yourself to them in a way they don't know yet? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then you get a little M-dash like we had last week, right? So Paul's going to call time out and clarify what he says there. It says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have, a, uh, excuse me, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says, hey, would you, would you help them know the, the breadth of your love? Would you help them know the length of your love? Would you help them know the height of your love? Would you help them know the depth? By the way, that's every metric we've got, right? Paul's hope and prayer for the, the church at Ephesus is that, that the love of Christ, that understanding who God is and what he has done and, and what he thinks of them is not something that they've heard about or seen out in the distance somewhere. No, no, no. It's real. It's in their face. It, it fills every nook and cranny of their heart and life. It is three-dimensional and something to be dealt with. Paul's hope and prayer, the knee-jerk, desperation-level prayer of the Apostle Paul is that it would be right in front of them and that it would be forced to do something with it. Oh yeah, I've heard about that love of God. No, 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 no. This is here. It's doing something. 
yeah, I've heard about what God's done. No, 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 no. He's doing something. The thing Paul wants for them more than anything else, that they would know God deeply and be filled to the brim with understanding God's love for them. And what environment does it say that that flourishes in? Church rooted and grounded in love for one another, doesn't it? You've heard me say it before. We're going to continue saying it. We, we talk about this all the time because it matters, right? When the church is doing what the church has been designed by God to do, when the church is what the church has been designed by God to be, we get more of God together than any one of us ever would by ourselves. Just the truth. So let me address a category of people in the room that I don't typically address directly from the stage. Those of you who love Jesus, but aren't really invested here. Those of you who love Jesus, or you're walking with them, you're, you're, you're following him wherever he would go, but for whatever reason you just haven't plugged yourself in anywhere, that would include here, right? According to Paul in Ephesians 3, you're not really robbing us of anything, you're robbing yourself of something. Right? Like to, to intentionally withhold yourself from, the, from the, the group of people, the hagios, the saints that have been gathered together for their good and for the good of the gospel. Uh, you're missing out on something massive there. To be here but not really here? You're robbing yourself. To, to withhold yourself from the group of people that he uses to grow you and mature you and make you into who he wants you to be. That he uses to equip you and send you out for the purpose of mission. That he uses to give you more and more of himself. To be here but not really be here is just doing damage to yourself in the short term and in the long run. Just the truth. Which is why you will hear me say every once in a while that if we're not the place God has called you to be, that means follower of Jesus somewhere else is. Somewhere else is. Being committed to a local body of believers where you know and are known, where you serve and are served. Listen, guys, that's not optional for the follower of Jesus. And to hang out but not really be invested here means you're walking in disobedience at the least. It means you're robbing yourself of things God wants for you. Now, some of y'all, some of y'all are still checking us out, and that's okay. Because this isn't a race. We intentionally slow down our membership process. Um, we make that take longer than it does for a lot of other churches, and there's a reason. Because it, it's unhealthy for any of us. Any of us. You, me, all of us jointly. It's unhealthy for any of us to commit to each other before we really know what it is we're committing to. All right? We intentionally slow down that process. There's also a gigantic difference between checking us out and dragging our feet in there. We're not building our own kingdom here. I hope that's not like this news flash to you. I hope you've, you've picked up that thought before. And to hang on to you 
for the purpose of attendance numbers or financial numbers. Listen, that's detrimental to your soul. It's also something that I think I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account for one day. I'm not standing in your way. So you're going to hear me say every once in a while, man, plug in or let us help you plug in somewhere else. Because we're not building an empire here. This ain't a game. And this ain't a show. If it was, man, I could think of a whole long list of stuff to do on a Sunday morning that would be more fun than here. Sleep in, go get you some brunch, brunch catch the Patriots game. All right? Cowboy game. <laughs> I'm trying to meet people where they're at. Listen, if this is a show, man, let's go catch a movie or something. Hollywood's pouring a lot more into that budget than we are. But if there's an eternal reality to what we're doing here, if God really does use this gathered body of people to, to equip us, to grow us, and to prepare us, if, if there's an eternal reality to what we're doing here, then man, man, cheating ourselves out of what God wants for us is not exactly in our best, best interest now, is it? So man, press in. Man, I, I love you. I want to shepherd you. And out of that love and out of that desire to shepherd you, out of that desire to see God grow you and use you, if we're not your place, that means follower of Jesus somewhere else is. And you're, it's detrimental to hang out. Eventually, we've got to have a DTR, define the relationship, right? I'm going to get, get off my soapbox now. Verse 20. Now to him, God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So sometimes this verse gets hijacked for power team type stuff, right? Uh, the, the crowd of people that would want to say, oh, just, just ask God to do something and stand back and watch him do more than you ever imagined kind of crowd, right? The kind of crowd that would kind of want to make God into a cosmic genie who just fills all our wishes. But what's the context? The context is that Paul wants the Ephesian church to know God deeply, right? And so when he says God can do far, far more than all that we hope or imagine, when, God, when he says that, that he can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, God is excited, excited to give us himself, right? Why? Because in doing so, he'll receive more glory. Right? What does verse 21 say? To him be, what's the word? Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Because God will receive more glory for it. God is excited to give us more and more of himself. Excited to give us the spirit with power. Because in doing so, God is seen as greater and greater in his goodness. Because at the end of the day, the story isn't about me. It's not about you. And it's not about the collective us. We press into the depth of community for God's glory. Yeah, he uses it for our good, but it's also ultimately for his good. 
the reason why God is pleased to give us more and more of himself is because in doing so, his glory will be seen throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. And I would assume that's probably Paul's prayer for us as well, right? So how do we respond to God's word this morning? For the follower of Jesus, our response is to press into God, right? Specifically, by pressing into the body of believers that he's given us. Whether you're just, whether you've been here for years and you're more invested than anybody else around you, whether you're just checking us out and hanging out, or you're somewhere in between, all of us press into the body called Nashua Baptist Church for the follower of Jesus. We press into the thing that God has given us for our good to grow us, to mature us, to do all these things that he has called us to do. We press into the depth of community and accountability and cooperation for mission that God in his goodness has seen fit to give to us. Maybe you're here and you're thinking that's something you're interested in, but you just don't know what the next step is. That's fair. That's fair. Like I said, we intentionally slow slow that process down. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We're going to have a couple of guys up front to talk. Listen, that's what they're there for. And so if you're processing through what that looks like, come talk to them. It's a bunch of guys who are walking deeply with Jesus, who are plugged in deeply to our church. They have a lot of wisdom, and then, man, they love to help you work through that stuff. They love to help you make that next step. Come talk to them. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I am. I'm glad you got questions. I think Jesus is too. What I hope you hear today, just let me press just a little bit. What I hope you hear this morning is that while Jesus is undaunted by your questions, and while he's not surprised by your hesitancy to come to him, neither is he a God who is fooled by the games we sometimes like to play with our own hearts. In his goodness, he is both patient with you and he sees right through you. Think you're going to fool him with the game? Please. He created you. Maybe today is the day that you will finally repent of your sin and call on him to save you. Maybe today is the day that you will finally say yes to what Jesus has been doing in your heart for a long time now. Maybe today is the day that you will finally give in and call Jesus what he has always been. Lord, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some guys up here to talk to you if that's something that's of help to you. Let's thank God for his word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for uniting us together as a body of believers called Nashua Baptist Church. Despite all of our hurts and our hang-ups, and we've got more than we can count. Despite all those, you are good, and you are working all things for our good. And you're going to use those hurts and hang-ups, and you're going to Use them to glorify yourself as you draw us to yourself. God, my hope, my prayer this morning is that you would make yourself known to us in a way that is forever changing us. Guys, we, we do our best to unite ourselves to each other. As we pour into the larger body through whatever means we've got, as we, as we try to be the church, would you take our feeble effort and make it into something that we can never do on our own? 
God, would you bring, would you fold in more people into your church here? Not so that we can build a kingdom for ourselves, but so we can point people clearly to yours. Not so we can be the biggest church in Nashua or New England or whatever, but so lots and lots of people come to know you and are saved by you and are with you forever. Make us a force to be reckoned with because we have seen you. God, if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? Would you reveal yourself to to hearts and forever change them? Draw them to yourself this morning. Give us all the courage to respond however you're calling us to respond. In your name, amen.